0: Welcome back to the Meet Us in Paris podcast. I am Zen, and this is a podcast about all things travel—be it food, what to pack for your next trip, or just general town foolery. And with me today is Kristen. It's
1: me. Hi. Hey. Hello. How's it going? Hey. Good.
0: <laughs> Finally sunny in Southern California. We've had a lot of rain. Yes. So, all up and um, down
1: California.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad we don't have to build an arc and record this yeah. from it, so... Um, yeah. Unfortunately, Tanya couldn't make it again this week, but don't you worry, we're soldiering on, and she'll be back before you know it. Um, last week, we re-ran a podcast about random travel trivia from our early days, and I casually mentioned mm-hmm. for one of the factoids that wompo- wombat poop is square. Seriously, go listen to it if you haven't heard it. Um... It was really fun, and I don't know why we didn't do more of those, so we're going to fix that today, and Chris and I thought we should do another for this week, so um, we never formally named it, so today we're going to fix that.
1: All right, so welcome to pass or, yeah, Passport to Trivia. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll take you on a journey around the world to explore the most interesting and obscure facts about international travel. Each episode will delve into the history, culture, and geography of different countries, sharing stories and tidbits you may not have heard before. Whether you're a seasoned traveler or just love learning about different cultures, this is for you. So, pack your bags and join us as we embark on a journey of discovery and trivia around the world.
0: And while the pilot is waiting for an okay from the tower, here's a quick message from our sponsor. Meet Us in Paris is sponsored by the University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Do you have an educational goal? At UCI DCE, we're here to help. With over 60 certificate programs available, we've helped over a quarter million students reach their goals. And we can help you reach yours, too. You can find us at ce.uci.edu. Dream big. Take risks. Be amazing. All right. Do you want me to go where you want me to go?
1: You know, I want you to go because mine ties in really well with yours.
0: Okay. Okay. So the first one I'm going to talk about, are we talking about the um, RMS? Yes. Okay. Okay. So one of the things I've always noticed was all the old movies that you watch, a lot of the ships that you see, or especially cruise ships, they're always called RMS. And so, like, for example, it's the RMS Titanic. It's the RMS Queen Mary. There's an RMS Queen Mary 2, and it's just, like, I always assumed it just meant something that it was British <laughs> and, like, blessed by the Queen or something. So, oh, I
1: was much less intelligent. I just thought it was shorthand for some kind of ship, like, that anyone from anywhere would uh, have their ship start with RMS, but clearly I no.
0: All I know is it, I never saw a Dutch ship with it, but it always seems like British ships had it. So I thought maybe military right. or I don't, I don't know, but then they, they were on cruise liners and I never knew what that meant. So mm. what RMS stands for is Royal Mail Ships. Hmm. Um, and here's the factoid. They are a fleet of ships owned and operated by the British government for the purpose of carrying mail passengers and freight between Great Britain and overseas territories. These ships played a role in connecting the British Empire, um, and remember, british it was the British Empire that was worldwide, helping them facilitate trade and communication amongst all of its different colonies. So the first RMS was the Britannia, Britannia which set sail in 1840, and then there was a ton of other ships. Um, they were built to the highest standards under the Queen and considered one of the most luxurious and technologically advanced vessels of, of the period. So they were set, they were equipped with things like private cabins, dining rooms, libraries. You've seen the Titanic. They were beautiful. But in addition to carrying mail, they also played a good role or an important role in moving troops uh, during times of war, during World War One. Um, the Aquitania was used as a troop ship, uh, the Queen Mary, which is harbored here in long beach of California as a tourist destination. You can go actually go there. I think it's opening this January or February. You can stay overnight in it as a hotel. Um, the Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, they were used as troop ships and they played a key role in the evacuation of British and allied troops from Dunkirk. We've hmm. all seen the movie, right? <clears throat> okay. No, but I know what you're talking no. about. <laughs> Dunkirk?
1: Yeah, I'm not <sighs> into that kind of stuff. I'm not
0: into it either. But, you know, anyways, the Royal Mail ships also played a vital role in the history of immigration. Um, People from the world moved into it. But, you know, nowadays there's less boats floating around, obviously. And so as air travel became more popular and started taking over boats the role of the RMS fleet started to disappear. Um, there are, however, from what I did some research, there's still three RMS ships. So, and these are kind of weirdos. The first one is something called the RMS Seguin. And it was built in, it's still in, it's still working. It's in Canada. Hmm. It was built in 1887 it was. It's a steamship that looks like when you think of Mark Twain, you know, with a steamship yeah, with yeah. the paddles on the side. Mm-hmm. It was one of those things. And it became modern because they updated and took off the paddles and then they put turbines in the back later on. And it's still a steamship in, um, in Canada serving Gavinhurst, Ontario, Canada. The second one is R M V Sicilian the third, which serves the Isles of Sicily, and the last one is the last ocean-faring tour ship, um, which is the R M S Queen Mary two. There you go, and so you know, I just strangely enough, this took me down this strange rabbit hole, That's the R sure. M S thing, <laughs> and this is the little story that I learned about what R M S means on essentially the titanic
1: but it's weird to me that it's like classified as a mail ship when that's not what we know that titanic for at all
0: <clears throat> right i mean it's it's right they, they were mail ships but they were they were people moving ships but how come they you right. know don't hear them as people moving ships like pm what, right PMS. is there an
1: alternative oh. is there a PMS?
0: <laughs> the pms that would be terrible but you know <laughs> How come they didn't call it something like trans people transport with male as a secondary? Right. But I guess. it's weird to me. Yeah. So there you go. All mine are in the British Empire, by the way.
1: Um, Actually, quite a few of mine are as well. So maybe this one just focuses on that. Okay. All right. Cool. So mine actually amazingly has to do with male from the United Kingdom as well um in the united kingdom their letter boxes will all have a royal cipher on them and so apparently there has kind of been a renewed interest in the cipher spotting um and essentially what this means is each of their monarchs gets their royal cipher so these are essentially their initials um but uh-huh. it will I, it will always be the The first letter of their regnant name, and then R. So the R stands for either Rex or Regina, which means king or queen in Latin. Um, so you're probably all of us are used to seeing our whole lives the Queen Elizabeth II's royal cipher, which is the big ER and then the small um, Roman numeral two in the middle. So which stands for um, Elizabeth Regina II. But um, so for every letter box that goes up in the United Kingdom the royal cipher of the reigning monarch goes on these boxes. Um, but they actually I there's so much So you can tell the age
0: of the box from exactly. the cipher then. Oh Right. And that's so obviously cool.
1: these older ones are, are much more rare um as they like have to get replaced and whatnot. Um and there was so much information about this. Um so there's actually like you can read a lot more, but It seems that the post boxes, like having a letterbox where you can drop off your mail, um, started in about 1837 or like the mid-1800s. Before that, um, you would either have to take it to what was, I don't remember what the official name was, but it was essentially a post office, um, or the bellman would come. And the bellman would basically just be walking up and down streets ringing a bell. And that's how you knew to run out and give him the mail that you wanted to take, which is hilarious. So in the mid-1800s, they make these boxes that you can um, go drop your mail in. Um, And that started under, um, looks like Queen Victoria. So she was the first one. Um, to have her cipher on the letter letterboxes. Um, and since then, we are up to, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So King Charles III will be the eighth royal cipher that you would be able to find on these um, boxes. So these would date either from about 1830s up to present day. Um, and I also read some other interesting things about it that I guess the letterboxes were originally red and then at some point they changed them to green, but people stopped being able to find them and they would complain that they didn't know where the letterboxes were. Oh uh, <laughs> so they had to go back to red to make them, um, easily spotted. Whereas, um, you know, in the U S like urban
0: box, camouflage green. with the green or something.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it's, it's not easily spotted. Um, but, uh, yeah, the red is kind of intense to me because, you know, ours are blue. And the red, to us, I feel like, signifies, like, emergency. So, if I see one, mm. I would think it was, like, a fire hydrant or something. But when you're in the UK, anytime you pass by, a like, a post box, a whatever, um, you can check and find the royal ciphers and know when that post box was installed.
0: That's super cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw know. them, but... And saw the little thing on the top, but I never realized that it was specific to a monarch. Yeah. Because all of them should... are Queen Elizabeth.
1: Right. I mean the vast majority will be, I'm sure, because she yeah, reigned so long. But I feel like this is something maybe we should even like post on um, our socials because it shows you all the all the ciphers and you can see who they're from and everything. It's kinda interesting. I do
0: have but to take a look at that. Thought.
1: But, yeah, so first you drop your mail on one of these post boxes, and then it goes on an RMS ship and gets sent out around the world.
0: <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. Okay, so next up. um, Actually, man, I was just thinking I one of the things I should have done was uh, police boxes, because my daughter right. and I have been watching Doctor Who a lot. but they they actually police boxes don't really exist even if you are a local you may not even have seen one because they've been gone so long but what you will have seen is london black london's black cabs uh they're Uh, also known you have you taken one
1: i have yes
0: Okay. But this cool, was
1: in like cool. so I don't have a whole lot of my, yeah, I remember.
0: They I mean, pretty <laughs> much look exactly the same. They're these little squat, strange look you know, they look they like look they're like, a the mix windows between like a
1: black. PT cruiser and like a taxi cab.
0: Yeah, and like truncated, right? Like kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. fat and squat of it, yeah. So they're also known as hackney carriages. They've been a staple of the city's transportation for over a century. So they originally started out as, as horse-drawn carriages. Uh, they're black cabs that can be traced back to the uh, 1600s when horse-drawn carriages, as I men- mentioned, known as hackneys. And um, they were used to transport people across the city. And early, in, early 1900s, the first gas-powered ones came about. Um, and then um, the Metropolitan Police began to the license these, and the black paint job was introduced as a requirement for all licensed cabs at that time. So they, they, um, they're, uh, but, and this is a, I kind of going sideways for a second. You can actually still get a horse drawn hackney or a black cab, um, apparently. Um, in little towns outside of London. So I got I didn't <laughs> see this myself, but apparently you can still get a horse-drawn carriage um, yeah. and take it as a taxi. But London taxis have some really strange today. Some of them are even electric. And one of the strangest requirements is they have to be able to turn in a circle that is not greater than 20. not greater than 28 feet
1: wow and okay now (laughs) this
0: is a strange one it's like well why do they have such a strange requirement one reason is this is there's something called the savoy hotel Ah, yes and the very famous savoy hotel and the entrance has a very small roundabout And so all London black cabs must be able to turn in that small roundabout. Wow. So, you know, it's essentially, you know, so all London black cabs have been designed to go around that little tiny roundabout, as opposed to making that roundabout a little bit larger, (laughs) which of course everyone would yell, you know, and so they designed cars around the hotel, not, they didn't, redesign the hotel so cars can get around them. Um, so they're I mentioned that they run electric, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that they're really famous because this encyclopedic knowledge of the black cab drivers, these black cab drivers have to go through a rigorous test called the knowledge and ensures all drivers have a thorough understanding of the city streets, landmarks, and points of interest. But not, So when they're taking the test, they need to have every single street in London memorized. And yeah. when I, my understanding is, as a test, they'll tell you where you are, give you a starting point, and they'll give you an end point, mm-hmm. and you must give them the quickest way get from point a to point b from their mind from their head and oh go ahead
1: i was going to say that is clearly impressive i'm not taking away from that that is amazing but doesn't it seem like kind of every taxi driver before gps and smartphones like would have been able to do that like isn't that what they did before smartphones or no i mean i remember thomas guides but taxi cab doesn't have the luxury to stop and look one up
0: you know, I think they they had some, I don't know. I've been places where it's just, I don't know where that is. Can you tell me where that is? Right, I'm right, not right. going into yeah. London. And, or you bring, it's like you have to bring, even today, it's like I come, it's like they have to, look, sometimes on GPS, they don't even know quite where it is, or they had to pull out a map, or you had to tell them yeah, where you're yeah, going. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. these guys, apparently, if you just say, it's like, I need to go to Tower Bridge Road. 2332 or something like that they know exactly what block how to get there and if somewhere like there's a traffic accident instantly be able to like gps re-navigate to the spot um using alternative routes and also be almost like a tour guide they know where every museum restaurant and hotel is but yes now it's all taken over by computer so it's kind of this is not as uh not as as impressive as it used to be, um, mm-hmm. but it was really really hard to take this test. And apparently, they were paid fairly well because of their encyclopedic knowledge. So, and and actually, I mean,
1: impressive.
0: the first time I learned about this, I think I found it in a science magazine. Um, even oh, before wow. I went to London, yeah. And the reason why was uh, scientists did a study. Of all of these, uh, all these um, drivers, and apparently, I don't. I'm not good at anatomy, but essentially, like their hippocampus is like huge or something like that because oh. they they have like a special under, has special spatial understanding, right? And so they they think spatially different than the rest of us, you and I, and so their brains develop differently than the rest of us
1: geez so yeah yeah
0: so they actually did studies on these black cab drivers and found out they just have a different type of spatial understanding so yeah um but anyways if you're in london go check it out the um the you know there's other services like uber or you know which is killing the black cabs and there's also non-black cabs but if you have a chance you just got to get into a black cab because a they're they're really neat in shape and size um they have like a jump seat that's facing back and you know it's just and they're really spacious so they're very comfortable to ride in and you know all the the drivers i've ever met were always more than happy to discuss the city or talk to you about just yeah. London in general. So I really enjoy taking a black cap.
1: It's so funny because it's the opposite in New York where, like, the official city caps <laughs> are yellow and the black caps are the gypsy caps.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, that works. Oh, very cool. Well, people probably know this. Um, well, I'm sure you know where the Prime Meridian runs through. hmm Greenwich. England. That's why we call it Greenwich Mean Time.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: do you know where the original Prime Meridian was?
0: No. Where was that?
1: Um. So it's not actual- Greenwich,
0: apparently. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: um, it was. It's apparent. It's a bit of a trick question. Um, it was essentially everywhere. Um, so everyone, as as um, as we were starting to do more global travel and all this stuff, people were starting to get confused because. Everyone, every like country with their own maps and charts would make the prime meridian based in their own country. So France published maps with zero longitude being Paris. Um, China published maps with their zero degree longitude running through Beijing. Um, even different parts of the same country would publish maps with the prime meridian being through like their, their section. So Everyone was confused. No one could get it right. So there was an international convention called um, by the U.S. President Chester Arthur in 1884. And representatives from 25 countries agreed to pick a single standard meridian. And they Oh, I was hoping you are going to say
0: they played rock, paper, scissors and eliminated everyone until London. That was. would have
1: been – maybe Towards they did. The they UK. don't say how they yeah. – <laughs> It could have been. We weren't there. We don't know. Um, so they chose it to pass through the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England, and that became the international standard for the Prime Meridian. So this was only the late 1800s. I mean, that's that's not that long ago. Not that far. Not um, exactly. Yeah. and So that's where... How- mm-hmm.
0: Is that... So remind me, is that where you step over and you're in a different day?
1: No, that would be the dateline.
0: Okay, that's the dateline. Okay.
1: And so the international dateline is, um, I think one of the reasons they chose Europe um, is because the international dateline is halfway around the world um, at 180 degrees longitude. And they specifically, I think, wanted it in the Pacific Ocean where it was like the least disruptive to, That you makes know, sense. Yeah, and so if you even look to, you've probably seen, the date line it, it actually isn't just straight it kind of zigzags at some points and oh. the, the reason they did that was so that certain especially those island nations that there wouldn't be a country that had two different dates going on you know even though the times like essentially the same so the dateline does accommodate so that every country is within like the same day if that makes sense
0: yeah 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 that makes a lot of sense
1: um, but so that's halfway around the world from Greenwich. But they do have like there the like the gold line in the street where people have they have like a foot in each side, and that just divides the eastern and western hemispheres.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Of course you and have do you to do many, that.
1: Do you know how many time zones there are in the world?
0: No, how many?
1: Twenty four that makes 24 sense 24 time zones in the world but i don't know i always had assumed that the prime meridian was just in england because you know england basically ruled the world for so long so you just assume right. they just established it and everyone else followed suit but no everyone was having their own thing going on for the longest time
0: that um, makes a lot of sense is,
1: and i had i i can't speak to this as fact but i could have sworn that people had actually wanted paris to be the prime meridian but they rejected it for some reason or something, but maybe I'm making that up. But it is in Greenwich, and which now that I think about it, I want to look up <laughs> where exactly that is. Like, is that essentially London? Greenwich. England. Let's see. Yeah, it's essentially London. It's just to the east. So cool. Yeah. <coughs> England
0: nice. wins again. <laughs> okay, so back to London. Um, well, just the UK in general. But um, one of my favorite Indian dishes that's not an Indian dish <laughs> is chicken tikka masala. How that works.
1: <clears throat> Yeah, that's right? What my team always gets
0: uh, yeah, and, and uh, my uh, growing up in the United States, I liked Indian food. You go all lots of Indian places, and they all serve chicken tikka masala. And the assumption to me was that chicken tikka masala was an Indian dish, and it's possible, very possible, that it is not an Indian dish. However, it is a Indian a dish made from Indians culturally so as people might know is that one of part of the british empire was india and so um indians not native americans but indians um were live they live all over the world but specifically in london and that particular dish was most people believe was invented actually in london um sort of Pakistani, Scottish person um, of descent from the area. Strangely enough, or um, recently, there's a gentleman named Ali Ahmed Aslam. Um, people knew him as Mr. Ali. Died who at the age of 77 in December of last year. And he is credited by many people as the inventor of... Uh, chicken tikka masala. Nice. Yeah, and and actually, he has a restaurant. You can go to the. I think it's a little is a chain, and you can actually order the original version of it.
1: Oh What's wow! What's very
0: <clears throat> right? Yeah, so you can go there to the restaurant, and they're very famous. You know, you go there. I think it's a, from my understands, you know, it's kind of like almost like a suit and tie kind of place. You go eat there, wonderful food. The other thing that is also telling is if you go look up a recipe for chicken tikka masala it varies tremendously there are hundreds of recipes it's not like one consistent recipe so interesting it, yeah so that's the other part that's very very interesting so um that's kind of this you know is is super short but that's about all i know about it because no one knows exactly where it started but they also do believe it was actually um, created in London. Um, and But there is something called chicken tikka, by the way, which is a popular street food in Pakistan and in India, but it is different than t- chicken tikka masala. The sauces are very, very much different. Wow. So I think <laughs> that... my understanding was mm-hmm. that they're trying to make a chicken tikka a little bit easier for non- um, Asians to eat because it wasn't nearly as spicy. Huh. huh. So okay. you're going to say something? I'm what, sorry.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that kind of makes sense because so much of India is Hindu and vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they um, a meat-based dish might not have come from there. But right. Obviously, there are Indians who do eat meat, but um, i could like, oh, I could see that, yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yep. Yep. So, okay. also
1: on the food um, uh, topic, do you mm-hmm. know why there is 13 in a baker's dozen?
0: <laughs> no. Why is there 13 so in I, a I'm, I'm assuming dozen.
1: if you people know the expression we call a baker's dozen. So, a dozen is 12, and a baker's yeah. dozen is 13. Is
0: 13. Um, right.
1: And I never knew why. And I found this very interesting because this is thought to have originated from bakers in medieval England um, to make sure their customers were happy. And to me, so this makes perfect sense. So you could, someone could ask for a dozen eggs and you get 12 eggs and it's, they're super easy to identify. They're consistent. Um, You're going to get the same thing every time, but with baked goods, you can't always um, make sure they're turning out the exact same sizes or how the dough is rising um, so bakers would throw in an extra one in case one of them came out like kind of small or whatever so they would make sure huh. they felt like they were getting their money's worth each time and that makes complete sense to me why it's specifically a baker's dozen
0: right it's it's like a spare tire right yeah, yeah so in case one doesn't rise properly or something like that
1: yeah, and apparently many bakers didn't have accurate scales to weigh their flour, um, so if they if they were cheated cheating people, um, they could result in punishment. So bakers would hedge their bets and include thirteen to make sure no one complained. Nice. I'm like, oh, that, is, that makes sense. I get it now. So um, obviously now with these super professional. Uh, pastry chefs and bakers i feel like that's hardly a problem anymore but um for someone like me i'm like oh yeah all my things come out lopsided and <laughs> different shapes all the time so it makes sense so i like that factoid
0: cool was that um, one so of there, your factoids
1: yeah i thought so <laughs> I didn't cool. have to no because i'm i'm all out <laughs> I don't i'm know, all out I was- this was very specifically English trivia or um, UK trivia. So,
0: yeah, um, we'll have to be coincidentally because we don't talk to each other because we don't want Before to spill. Because no. I want to know, I want to learn something from you and you want to learn something from me. So, like most of the time, right. you know, and that's why sometimes on occasion we have some crossover. But today we obviously did. not But strangely enough, it was all in London
1: yeah weird so next time we'll we'll make sure to branch out more because actually i did find some factoids from other places but i thought we'd keep this consistent since we had
0: some all from england so i, I think we should do this again i had it yeah
1: i love doing this i'm all about the trivia so everything from royal mail ships and post boxes to the prime meridian and tiki masala
0: you want to pick a um country let's do it again
1: We will. Where do we? That we just
0: did. Uh, Like, yeah, okay. Let's Japan. Maybe we'll do one on Japan. Japan. Okay. I have to start thinking. Okay. Okay. Cool.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you guys for tuning into our Passport to Trivia England version. We hope that you guys had as much fun as we did. What do you think? Contact us on our social media channels, where you can find photos of our adventures from around the world, interesting articles, and more. Also, if you're newer to our podcast, check out some of our older destination ones on Toronto, Portugal, Barcelona, and Copenhagen, just to name a few.
0: Meet us in Paris. This is the University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education Production. If you need a career boost, looking to increase your workplace knowledge, or looking for a new profession, check them out at ce.uci.edu for the professional courses. Thanks again for tuning in. Next time, Japan. Bye. Bye.
1: Sayonara.